What is the best practice for building a product if you're an early stage startup? Well, today we've got the answer for you. We're revisiting Anthony Rose's episode. He's the former head of BBC iPlayer and the founder of Seed Legals. In this episode, he gives you game-changing tips on product development, how to raise early stage investment effectively, and why the stats suggest that having a military-grade focus is the key to startup success. Let's dive into it. Anthony, welcome so much for coming on the show. Thank you. So here we are, we're here for the early stages, okay? And we have, as the show sounds, a really basic principle. That is, we believe that people should back themselves. If you have a great idea, you understand a problem and you think you can make the world better, go out and do it. Back yourself to go and do it. Control your own destiny. I believe that everyone should do that. And so we invite people on, like yourself, people who are founders, investors, people in that startup community to share their stories and their advice to help other people do the same. Simple as that. That's the concept. Um, I know that you have been through quite an incredible journey. You've done some amazing stuff. I love what you're doing today. So many things that I want to cover, and I'll cover yep. those a little bit later on, particularly things around you know, what is SEIS, what is EIS, what's... We'll get what there. Has, yeah, what yeah. kind of fun around. So to your background, like you didn't just fall into starting... Celia, are you, are you a lawyer? Are you a techie? What happened? Good question. People often ask that. So years ago, I uh, studied le electrical engineering, built my own electronics company. That morphed into real-time 3D graphics. That morphed into, I was living in Australia. I was hired by the BBC to head up a BBC iPlayer. Uh, they called me. I said, uh, BBC, where are the stock options? But I was uh, <laughs> enthused, moved over to London, headed up iPlayer for three years. After that, I decided it was time for startup time again. Built a startup, sold it, built another startup, sold it, invested in a few, got tired of paying lawyers, met my uh, business partner, Laurent Lafie, an ex-VC and serial angel investor. And he was saying, those lawyers, they make mistakes, they take forever, they charge a fortune, we should change it. And he'd been working on this problem for about six months after we met at a party. He gave me the results of his work, which was a 49,000 line spreadsheet. And he said, can you build this? And I went, there are two problems. One, I just can't build it. It's way too complicated. And even if I could, no one would ever use our product. It's far too complicated. Yeah. So I need to tell you three letters, M, V, and P. <laughs> um, and uh, let's slim it down. And that's how we got started. That was about uh, three and a half years ago. And we've been live for about uh, two and a three quarter years now. That's a really good, yeah. that's an interesting story. So you, um, let me take a step back to the bit that I'm particularly interested in because I'm always fascinated about that inception point where someone says, so you're an iPlayer, okay? And there yeah. are a lot of people listening to this who have good jobs. Yes. And typically founders tend to have pretty good jobs before they start. They're usually yeah. quite successful people anyway. I've been the head of iPlayer as a techie sounds like a pretty much of a dream gig. So what made you think, actually, do you know what? I'm going to do something different. And was it something different or was it something synonymous? What was it? What was it? Well, my salary made it to page three of the Times and it was time to move on and do you, something you, different. You, oh, you got, you're one of them, were you? <laughs> one of, well, almost one of them. I, it's a long story, but I wasn't. It hurts. It, but, but it and was, no one wants it, that, right? It was time to move on and do my own thing. Sure. And, uh, you know, it was nice also, I think, with iPlayer, we delivered success. And sometimes you look to do something else. I think uh, one of the interesting things, uh, which I think key is actually to when I see startups and when I see founders, you have a mission to do something. Yeah. 
And uh, as a slight deviation from where we've been talking about, when I hear founders, so of course my own journey has been very helpful in helping me be more experienced. But I think what's even more helpful is I talk to many founders every day. So thanks to Seed Legals, there are lots of people. We talk to them personally. And you can then try and see from the person's uh, mannerisms, their enthusiasm, um, and the thing they're looking to achieve, you can try and guess yourself how successful or not it might be. And I think things that I see as uh, indications of success is when someone has an idea that will have a real utility use case as opposed to an idea that would change the world for the better. So let me explain. Please do. So um, sometimes a founder will come along and say, I've got, you know, wouldn't it be great if people didn't throw away as much food or something like that? And we all agree that the world will be better for it. But the problem is, who's going to buy that? How do you convince people? As opposed to, I found a way that helps you save money, do X, mm. and I will build it. So in your mind, uh, you've got a vision. And the vision is usually something that's you know for good or for change. Um, but just persuading people to change behavior is non-trivial. They were happy with their previous way, or maybe they were unhappy with the previous way. What will they do tomorrow to change their behavior? And the problem I see is that people perceive the difficulty with a new venture is building the proposition. But actually, thanks to web services and AWS and things like that, building it is actually the easy part. Having people want to use it is the difficult part. Mm. And the real problem you have as a founder is that uh, it starts as a hobby. You have this idea. We'll pick, let's say, an amazing new bicycle lock that uh, Wi-Fi enabled, of course, GPS naturally. will find your bike if it's lost There's anywhere. There's not enough smart locks. <laughs> exactly. It will find your bike if it's lost anywhere in London. And your bike's been stolen a couple of times because all founders, you know, start with some personal uh, problems to solve. And you now obsess that everyone's going to want this lock. And so you think the difficulty is going to be building it. But in fact, cut to reality is you raise some money from friends and family and angels, which is now super easy to do. You build it. And now you discover the real problem is people aren't buying it. And how do you solve that problem? And this is the worst problem to have because... If you discover very early on you can't build it or you do some user testing and no one wants it, you fail fast and just have another idea. If you haven't spent any money on it, you can have an idea while you're jogging and give up on it. You can spend a bit of money and give up on it. But the problem is, as the founder, you've inspired people to leave their day jobs. Come with me on this mission. Isn't this an awesome thing? Yes, no one's got it yet, but you know we're going to change it. It's going to disrupt the space. And now you persuade people to leave their day jobs. You persuade investors to invest. You've raised a few hundred thousand pounds. Um, and now you've built it, but there's no traction. And this is really worrying because you just you're stuck in a place where you don't know what the answer is to that problem. You've built something, you think you've delivered the dream, but somehow you know sales aren't up month on month or people just aren't using it or there's no viral play. And now you see yourself gonna run out of money and now you have to persuade investors to invest further 
or you need to fold the business, or you need to work with the team to change something, but you don't know what to change. You've got all these variables. Is it another product feature you need to add? Do you need to find a new audience? Are you marketing the wrong way? Do you have to spend more on marketing? If only more people knew about it, sales would suddenly, or usage would suddenly take off. And the problem is, I think many founders are technical, and with technical problems, there is a path, sometimes a difficult one, to a solution. But I know I have to build this and this and this. But when you don't have product market fit, as it's called, mm. and people aren't using your products, it the, the really frustrating thing is you don't know what to do to fix that problem. You know, uh, do, do I need to market more? You know, is, is it a technical thing? Is it a pricing thing? Which variables can you change? Mm. And of course, you can change things. We all know about move fast, break things, be agile. But if you've only got a certain amount of runway before you run out of money, you can only make so many changes before you hit the end. Yeah. So what do you do? And that's, and, and so if you find yourself in that position, then the question, and to come back to maybe something we didn't quite cover, but I think we should cover, is um, how do you avoid that uh, bad place to be upfront? And the way to avoid it is to try and do user testing and validation before you build anything. So how do you do that? I mean, so look, I <clears throat> there are people listening to absolutely get that. I think, and I I firmly believe there is a real problem in um, certainly in the startup space where there are, and people might want to kick me in the face for this, but go for it. That there are too many technical founders on right. their own. There's too many people who think, and I've been there. I've been pitched to as an independent investor. People say. Tom, the tech will sell itself. It's like this is going to change the way X happens, or and I and I just don't believe it. People should be focusing. I I believe. I don't know how you feel, and tell me if I'm wrong here. It should be 50-50. 50% product, 50% traction. That's where you spend your time and your money because if you aren't getting traction, you haven't got the right product. It's a it's a massive issue. Right. But how do you? How do you? What's the best practice there? You see. So many companies, you say, come through see legal. It's like so many. And how do how do companies, people listening, how do they or the, the techie founders or you get sales founders as well who just sure. push it really hard and market it, but they're selling something that ultimately isn't going to work right. and it's going to break. They get sure. bad reputation. What what is best practice? How do I get you said there about getting some evidence or market testing really early on? Like, okay. Sure. So it sounds easy, but of course, realistically, um, what you'd like to have is show something to somebody before you've built it and then see if they want it. That saves you all the trouble of building it um, Love that. B before. So the question, I mean, it's non-trivial because, you know, you, you uh, if you haven't built it, how do you get a proper answer from somebody? So uh, firstly, I don't know the answer. But beyond that, there are a few things that you might use. So one of them is, I think, the commonly called fake it till you make it. So often uh, I'll see a company, for example, hiring AI scientists. They're expensive. You need many of them. It's going to cost a fortune. They're going to do all this AI. But actually, you can fake it till you make it. So imagine you just put up a website and the AI is going to do something amazing. Before you've got the AI, just get three people, get some interns to do it. It's not going to scale, but you can see if no one's buying it with, you know, a few people for almost no money manually doing it, 
don't go the next step. So with the legals, my fake it till you make it moment was we had to build this super sophisticated document automation platform. We ask you all your deal terms and the system over more than a thousand conditionals builds your shells agreement, term sheet, articles, and more. This is a lot of work. How did I know that people would actually want this? Maybe I would build all this stuff and then everyone would say, no, my lawyer insists on doing this. I just can't use you. So my, of course, I couldn't give people MVP legal documents. You couldn't have like a beta version of a legal document. That wasn't going to work. So what I did is we created the front-end website, which looked like the final product, but actually was our team and our internal chief legal officer mostly hand drafting things till we figured out what people really wanted. So our discussion was, you know, customers happy, we've done the deal, this is insane, it's killing us, we can't sleep, <laughs> we don't want more customers. Dude, tech team, we need to build this now because we found a yeah, real need. Yeah. So thing one is fake it till you make it. So see yeah. what you can do manually before you build lots of tech. I love that. We had a, we've got um, a group of guys here from a company called Switched, and they do um, um, it's kind of save you money in an automated fashion on your bills. Right. So you pay them a subscription and they automatically find you the best deal and change right. it. And when they first started out to get there, and I, it's exactly what you're saying, that's why I completely agree. They, they gave, put up a mailing list on their website, sign up, and then they were like, we've got software. Actually, no, the co-founders are manually doing right. it to test if it works rather than spending 200 grand building this amazing product. We're like, well, let's see if it works. And it's like, oh, actually, people don't like that. Right. Lucky. It's much easier for me to change it on my own spreadsheet than it is for me to go and get my dev team in Belarus to go and fix this for me. That's right. Do you know what I mean? That's, I absolutely buy into that. So the advice there, I think, to our people listening is do it yourself to begin with. Test it, test it, test it. Yes. I think the other thing is people perceive building it is success. But actually what I've discovered is building stuff is the failure to not have to build stuff. Stuff that you don't want to tell your tech team, but what wouldn't it be, all this effort and money you're putting in to build things, what if you could get the result with building less? So once upon a time you had to write all the code yourself. Now there's open source, so you try to use open source. You do have to have physical servers, now you outsource that. But what if you could Try your goal should always be to try and provide the consumer, your customer, with a solution with building less, and you only build more to reduce your cost of transaction once you've got some traction. So another thing, and then I'll get on to selling pieces. Um, another thing is don't build anything till you've worked out that people really want it. And my favorite example, back in my BBC days, my competitor, so to speak, was ITV. And one day they announced they were building a paid download service. So you could go to the ITV site and you could click a button to download and pay for Downton Abbey or whatever. And they decided, no doubt, that in the days of Netflix and TV advertising, they needed a new model of paid downloads. And I'm sure they surveyed some people but literally, so far as I know, they spent over a million pounds developing it, 12 to 18 months. It lasted for about four months till they pulled the plug because no one clicked the download button, oh the God. buy button. And so what could they have done differently? And what they could have done differently is on their website for the total cost of £12.50, put a buy button. And if you click it, it will say, thanks for pushing this button. If enough people push this, we'll go build the product. So... 
think about a total mindset inversion, which is look to provide the outcome without building it. And even before that, look to see will anyone even want it if you click on it. And then you might start you know, doing it manually. But they could have just put a button there. And if no one clicked the button, then they wouldn't have bothered wasting 12 months and a million yeah. pounds building it. And I always then look for signals when I see that someone's jumped straight to the build before the validate. So I, when we started C Legals, I figured I, I'm into this user testing. I tell people to do it. I should do it myself. So uh, one of the most difficult things when you start is picking a name, you know, domain names, everything's taken between that and trademarks. So I kept it about 1 a.m. having this fantastic idea. I'd buy it on GoDaddy. Um, I amassed about 30 different domain names. Of course you did, of course you did. And then in the morning, I'd tell you know the team being like three people at a time, hey, I bought XYZ, and they would go, that's a really crap no name. No way. Yeah, exactly, so yeah. I figured I should do some user testing. So we were at a workspace, a sort of shared uh, work uh, place. So I... Uh, went to the local cafe and I said, if people come by with this little card, they get a free coffee on me. And then I went around to all the companies that were uh, hot desking and I had printed out an A4 piece of paper with all the names that I thought of. And I had these genius names of Claws.com and Lexmata and DocMotion and others which I thought were amazing. <laughs> and there was Seed Legals on there as well. And then I said, you know, if you were looking to do a funding round, which of these might you look to go to? And they went too complicated, sounds difficult, sounds scary. Seed legals, oh, I know what you guys do. Yeah. And when the second person said, I know what you guys do, I thought, that's amazing. I haven't even built anything. I don't even know what I'm yeah. doing, but it sounds like it. So, of course, you get a particular result by asking a particular audience, which is super important. So because I asked early stage companies, super early stage, you know, I got a name of Seed Legals. Had I asked you know, in the city, they would probably not have said seed legals, they'd have called it something else. But yeah. but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, so picking, which is the next thing, which is pick the right audience to ask. And there's a wonderful book called The Mom Test. It's like 10 pounds on Amazon. The whole thing takes like two hours to read. And it's called The Mom Test because the idea is before you build something, you need to go out and ask people. And the problem is you ask your mother and you say, hey, mom, I've got amazing, you know, Wi-Fi enabled GPS bicycle lock with tracking and an app. And your mother knows nothing about this, but she thinks my son is such a clever boy. Of course, it's a good idea. So what happens is you ask the wrong people or you ask the wrong question. I might say, hey, imagine that there was this amazing device that tracked your bike if ever it got stolen and you'd go and you'd go, is it a good idea? And of course you're gonna say it's a good idea, A, because you didn't want to offend me, and B, because of the way I've asked the question, it sounds awesome, but I haven't told you the price, I haven't told you the battery lasts for yeah. two days. If you park yeah. it under a bridge, it won't work, you know, whatever yeah. it might be. So what you want to do is you want to find the real audience and then ask them questions like, have you ever looked for this type of product before? How much would you pay for this product? Do you, are you aware of any competitors? And if it turns out they've never looked for it, there are two possibilities. Either it's really revolutionary or more likely you found um, something that's not a real need, uh, a vanity need. I would love it that the world, and that comes back to the world, wouldn't it be great if the world was better place? People will behave in this way. 
we all agree we want to behave in a particular way, but are we actually spending our time, money, and effort finding something to do that? And the answer is it's quite rare. Yeah. Whereas if you find something where there's a pain point that a, a person has, um, and ideally the pain point is they can't go past go without doing something as opposed to persuading them to change electrical provider or electricity provider mm -hmm. every month you're you're annoyed but will you ever change no yeah so for example the funding round you just don't do a funding round until you've got legals you either have to pay lots of money to a lawyer or have heard about us and see we have a better service so in a sense it's uh you know position to be utility and a pain point utility. And I think those are ones that have the highest, uh, you know, potential traction and growth. That's a really interesting point you make there. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. I think so. That actually leads me quite nice onto my next question. You, How many people do you deal with a year on Seed Legals? Oh, um, well, we've got about 12,000 companies. Right. Um, we have at least 100 customer uh, interactions personally ourselves with the team per day. So thousands so you, so you're, a month. You're, yeah. you're more in touch with startups than any fund or accelerator could ever be. You have to, Absolutely. And, and look, I'm yes. a customer. I know I yeah. spoke to your guy on day one when yep. we set up. He asked me a lot of questions about my business. He made me feel very special. Good customer service. High five. But you must, for that, that, that you must create a really sort of encyclopedic knowledge of startups about what works and doesn't. So I'm going to ask you three questions in a row here, but so one for each. Firstly, is there a consistent variable that you see with the companies that come to you on day one and are still there in three years' time? There are no clear indicators, but to me, a few things jump out. So number one is, is it run like a military operation? So, you know, you, you start off as a startup, you have some other day job, and then you have an idea, you're in the bath, you're running, whatever, you have ideas. And of course, you don't stop what you're doing on day one. The idea is going to gestate and you're going to find a co-founder and then you're going to figure out if you can build it, build it and you're going to do some testing. Um, but at some point, it stops being a hobby and starts being a real thing. So key indicator number one is when I find a founder that's laser focused, everything they're doing is they've worked out the key things to make this a success and they're cutting out all of the other noise. So noise is... Should I incorporate in Delaware because maybe it will be bigger in the US later? It's like, well, you can work on, you can spend six months figuring out how to incorporate in Delaware and spend $50,000 on that exercise, or you can just spend six months building your products and focus on that. At the end of six months, either you'll have a Delaware company and no products, or you'll have figured out whether you have a product or not. So anything that is not connected with Having built something that people want should be discarded, and that leads to indicator number two. Uh, sorry, on, on the military operation, it's whether it's team hires, it's on finding office space, you know, everything that when we look back, did we do things that were optimized for success 
or for the wrong reasons. Hey, if we find an office space out in, you know, NW73, we will save £85 a month on office space. Like, great, but VCs aren't going to visit you there. You're much better off if you're focused and you look back and you've raised £3 million. But retrospectively, these would probably have been the steps. Talent doesn't travel. Right. Well, it's yeah. talent and other things. Yeah. Thing number two that I look for is uh, focusing on one thing and one thing only. So too often I see a pitch deck and people perceive that investors want you to deliver a big vision. And the problem is, I think if you read TechCrunch and look at Sequoia and so on, that might be the case. In the UK... It's a good way to have bad business advice is read TechCrunch. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll get to valuations in a moment. So um, the problem is UK investors, in my view, like to see the company reach profitability perhaps after the next round. What they don't want to see is an infinite sink of money that dilutes them and eventually they have nothing. Do you think it's the same the other way as well? Do you think that people don't want to see you make profit until that round? Because that's something I think that's an interesting question which I ask people and I get mixed views because sometimes I don't think, this is my experience of working with VCs and also talking on this show, VCs don't always want to see, if you go in and say, I'm going to be cash generative as soon as you take your money, they might be thinking, well, actually, maybe you're not growing fast enough. Right. Maybe if you're taking pre-seed now, maybe we want to see you do that at your seed round. Sure. So I think it's important to understand, and when you do, then everything plays out differently. You've got two quite distinct goals. Goal, primary goal, is to grow a vibrant business with people, and whatever your metrics are, revenue, customers, users, whatever it might be. That is your laser-focused mission. But you can't get to that end goal without a first goal of getting some investment unless you can fund it yourself. So you've got a separate goal, which you need to keep quite distinct in your head of being interesting to investors. And interesting to investors doesn't fully align with the business. So for a business, you might want to be profitable very quickly and you might want to grow organically so you don't need to raise investment but telling an investor after I've raised money with you I never need to raise again for them that's a bad outcome because they never get for an investor they want to sell their shares and get a multiple on their investment if you are cash flow positive and happily growing the company 25% year on year companies money founders are paying themselves for founders, this is Nirvana, your, your own boss, you've got a dream gig, you've got the team, you've got a, at some point, reasonable salary. But for the investor, there's nothing in it for them. So the investor wants something more ambitious than yeah, that. Yeah, sure. The question is how ambitious? And there I think founders fall into a trap. And the trap is firstly, putting so much in the pitch deck that for an investor, they just see, dude, there's no way you're going to build all the shit. You're going to run out of money first. And two, not keeping in their minds two goals. One, I want to entice an investor with a vision. But two, I only have four people. I can't build all these things right now. So one of the red flags for me is when I see a pitch deck and I see the company they're going to do a B2C proposition. They're going to do a B2B. They're going to sell data. They're going to put it on the blockchain. They're going to expand into other territories. And I go, this is awesome. How many people are you? You know, if the answer is less than 50, something's wrong. They go, yeah. oh, it's like three of us. And then I, you know, would explain if I'm talking to the person that in your 
run it like a military operation. If you are trying to do four things and your competitor is doing one, they've got 4x the resources to put on that one thing. So what you really want to do is you want to focus on where's your key uh, driver. It could be for your mission that something you really want. It's a consumer thing. Or maybe it is a B2B play. But don't, in my view, do both until way later. Separately, in your pitch deck to investors, you're never going to lie to investors because it's going to come back and haunt you. But what you're going to do is clearly show the growth, which is thing one, I'm going to deliver X. And now that's not it because that's nice but boring. And thing two, I'm going to have a B2B proposition and then it's going to be on the blockchain. And then I'm going to launch it in wherever. Yeah, sure. But you're going to show the investor clearly you're going to deliver on the first and it's going to help fuel the next. And you're not just going to spend more and more money building unvalidated things until you've validated the first part. And I think keeping these dual things in your head is important, which also can be read as don't drink your own Kool-Aid. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So advice one, so well, the advice that I love, I think that's actually, it's definitely a poster quote from there. I like that, is that the sort of, if there was a defining factor, it's military focus. It's yes. about being laser focused on what you do. Yeah. That's the first question. What do you, and so does that fit into my second question is, what do you see as a common pitfall? Is that people who are not focused? People who just don't, I don't know, focus on that single goal. They try to push themselves too broad. I think that's the case. The problem is in hindsight, once you've created a few startups, it becomes much easier to see which were the wrong things to do. So a goal of a podcast like this and what I like to do when I personally talk to people is to go, which things, you know, have we learned or I learned personally yeah. that had you, had I not done those, I would have gotten to, you know, success much faster or not done these stupid things or, you know, wasted months on that. And uh, I think it's very much about, you know, doing one thing, um, figuring out what success is because often you don't really know so hey i'm going to build this amazing bicycle lock how many do you want to sell i, I do I, I mean i don't know or i'm going to make the social network how what would be success so if you can think about that that that's helpful so yes somebody whatever the goal is focused on so i think there's another important thing which is from uh, my observation there are three roles that you have to fill to have a successful venture they might map to two or even one person exceptionally, but the roles are one, there's a domain expert. So this might be the doctor who's you know, got some dialysis solution or something like that. So they've got the problem, they've got a solution, they're the one with the vision. Separately, there's the person who's going to deliver it. And this could be the product or tech person, and that usually maps to the CTO role. Without this person, you're going to continue to have a vision and never ship anything. And the third one is the Mr. or Ms. Money. Somebody's going to help fund it. And that corresponds to you know, the COO, CFO kind of role later. And now, if you see that that's the case, I think you need, firstly, all three of these roles. Um, without a vision, you know, so, so when I look at a, a founder or founding team, I will mentally try to map which of these roles they cover. Sometimes you'll find two tech founders. They clearly, you're doubling up on the tech thing, but they're not, they're optimizing on tech, not what people want. Or 
they're so techy, which is amazing, but no one's going to fund them because they just can't get a decent slide deck together. Or you get different role, the ex-Goldman Sachs trader who's made some money and now wants to be a founder, and that they are super good on investment, but boy, do they have no idea about tech. They're going to spend huge amounts of money building things three times and each one throwing it away and starting again because they, they just can't communicate the language. Yeah. So now when I see founders, I look at, of the founding team, which of these roles do they map to? And sometimes it's a single founder, and if they cover all of them, that's great. But if not, I think as a founder, you should look within mm. and you should try and find people to compliment you. So, you know, yeah. at Seed Legals, I'm not the lawyer guy. I'm the tech product guy. For years, I've been building tech stuff. I love building tech stuff. It just happens that I've developed a passion for, mm. you know, the funding side of things. But my business partner is the genius at funding rounds, the mechanics of it in ways that I will never understand. Mm. We've got our chief legal officer to make it good law. And although I'm somewhat techy, less so these days, we have a CTO to build things. Putting it together, I'm the guy that tries to make things that people want. My business partner makes something the ecosystem wants, and the rest of the team make it something that works and is shippable. Yeah, sure. So I, I absolutely agree with you. I like that. The expert the the techie the builder yeah. the architect and then so can i can i challenge that slightly and ask you sure. a question about that the reason sure. i say that is that one thing that you didn't cover there well you sort of covered it but i think it's a core requirement is don't you need a leader that can be one of them but you need someone who's going to inspire other people to come and join you on that journey you need someone who's going to excite the investors right. and excite the team is that something where, so if you take, um, I mean, look, Steve Jobs was that guy. Right. Right. Do you know what I mean? Elon Musk is that sure. guy. Like they, they are also experts in their own area, but someone has to fill that role. And I I firmly believe that if you don't have someone in that fantasy team who doesn't have the charisma, like yourself, you are incredibly charismatic and articulate. Natural CEO. You see that through and through, but you're also a product guy, right? So do you not think that that's an essential part of it as well? as well as those other functional tech you, You're absolutely right. It's essential. I, actually, I didn't think about it as a role. I, I think, you know, all of the founders could do that, or maybe one of them does sure. more. Um, it's essential for two reasons. One, or several, one, you need to excite investors. Yeah. And that is the art of the pitch. Uh, you need to stand on stage. You need to show people that you have a vision and you can get there. And with their money, they will get a return. Two, finding uh, talent is difficult. Yeah. There are endless number of companies bidding for software developers in particular. And so... How do you attract people to want to work with you? You need to stand out. You need to cut out, cut through the noise. And for that, well, there are many things, but one of them is going to be, you know, blog posts, getting out, uh, news about your company everywhere, a charismatic leader, and so on. So, so you definitely need that. And of course, uh, companies go through periods of growth or not growth, you know, problems, whatever it might be. So somebody, it used to be called being presidential. Unfortunately, that's not such a great term these days. Um, in fact, a good leadership technique is you look at what Donald Trump does and you just do completely the opposite for absolutely everything. And then you're set. I love that burn. It's yeah. good. It's good. Right, yeah. Okay, so I'm like, going to ask you a few questions. Um, this is basic questions about the functional side of doing around and the legal side. So 
just for the people here who are listening who literally have no idea what they're doing. Right. First of all, what is SCIS? You mentioned it a few times, and why do I need it? SCIS is an amazing thing offered in the UK by HMRC. It says if you're an angel investor, you're investing personally, you can write off 50% of your uh, investment in this year or backdate to the previous tax year. Um, so if you invest £50,000 in a company, you can deduct £25,000 from your income tax. Even better, if you keep the shares for three years, then you can, when you sell them, you pay no capital gains tax. And if the company goes bang, you can also write off your investment, which you can't. So for an angel investor, their risk turns out to be some like 13 pence in the pound or something, which is amazing because, and that now fuels the UK startup economy. After the company has raised more than 150,000 pounds in SEIS, they can then raise 10 million pounds in EIS, which gives a 30%, not quite as good, but still pretty good. Pretty amazing though. Pretty amazing. So if you want to be investable, you want to be able to offer SEIS or EIS, and you want to get your advanced assurance, which you can do on seed legals. And this means you can tell investors, I can assure you that you will get it. HMRC have given me this letter. And that's often the difference between I'm in and come back later. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. And sounds absolutely amazing and essential. Um, How long does the typical funding round take at that early stage, that pre-seed? It's a fascinating question. So the the legal bit of it actually turns out to be by far the shortest bit. Um, the, the longest bit is finding investors. So you might put it as a funnel, you know, I need to have a, a pitch deck that is getting traction. Then I need to find sufficiently many investors. And then I need to round them up and send them a term sheet. And then I need to close. The, the mileage varies widely. But I think you should assume three to four months all up would be reasonable. Some people take longer and some people insanely shorter. My record is, I think, 23 hours from someone coming to see legals at midnight on a Saturday night to investors signing 100K Get them investment. on. I want to hear. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, but you might, I think, assuming three to four months would be a good starting point. Okay. What's the best way to raise functionally? As in, like, what contract should I be doing on? Should I be issuing shares? Do I use Seedfast and ASA? Okay. So that's one of the things I love about Seed Legals, which is I thought I had one problem to solve. And having solved it, I realized there's actually a meta different problem to solve. So my initial goal was to help people do funding rounds. A funding round is you line up lots of investors who are going to leave on the bus to go on holiday together. So the bus only can leave when they're all lined up and the bus is full. So I'm going to raise 200K. I need to find 10 investors at 10, 15K each or whatever. I create a term sheet. They all sign the term sheet. They sign a shells agreement. We update the articles. The bus goes, job done, repeat in 12 to 18 months. But why do you have to do that in the first place? Because the reality is you never have 12 investors together. You find one person who goes, hey, I love what you're doing. Can I invest 10K at a party? And you have to go, come back in April, wouldn't it be great if you go, wait, I can take your money now. So there was something called an advanced subscription agreement. We didn't invent it, but we productized it. And we called it a seed fast. And a seed fast means an investor can give you money now individually, which will convert into shares when you do your next funding round at a valuation to be determined later. So for the company, you can get money now to 
build stuff to increase the valuation to give away less equity. And for that investor, you're going to offer them a 10 or 15 or 20% discount to entice them. And if things don't go well and you'd never do a funding round, it still converts anyway. And it's SEIS compliant. And that, sounds like the absolute dream. And that, together with our rolling close round, has changed everything. Last one. Yep. Um, interested to get your view. You're a guy who invests. You're a guy who's been invested in. You're a guy who helps people deal with that investment round. Someone who is listening right now will be in a situation where they've got a great idea. They're ready to go. They need to go and raise some money. Where do they go? What, how, how do I find these mystical angels who are going to give me money to realize my dream and I'm going to help them realize right. their investment dreams? Where do I go? What do I, how do I find these people? Right. So this is unfortunately the number one question that I'm currently unable to solve. But okay. I think it goes as follows. Um, if it's early stage, don't waste your time talking to funds. Okay, sure, maybe go pitch a few funds. You're going to get some feedback um, and you're going to learn whether you sh it's worth spending time with funds. The most uh, efficient way of raising capital, the least lowest cost of capital is to find angel investors yourself. So you want to find people yourself, which means you're not paying anyone else to do it. Angel investors are looking for their SEIS and one of the key uh, benefits for a founder is it means the investors have to get ordinary shares. They can't get preference shares. They can't get anti-dilution. They can't ask for a return of money later and all sorts of things that are really non-founder friendly. So your goal is to find angel investors yourself. And to do that, you want to make as much noise as possible. You want to be posting. You want to be telling people. You want to be getting out and meeting. You want to be at pitch events and so on. Now, some founders are well-connected, and that works, sometimes not. And if that doesn't work, then, of course, you need help. So what can you do as an alternative? Well, the first thing is a crowd round. So a crowd round means one of the crowd platforms will help you find investors. You still generally need to find a third or sometimes even a half of all the investment up front. So people often regard it as a marketing exercise. But I think in deciding whether crowd platforms are good for you, um, one of the things that someone who's a data analyst who's looked at this has told me is one of the signals that indicates a successful crowdfunding campaign is how socially connected the founders are. So if you're someone who sits at home and does algorithms and never talks to anyone else, you're probably not the right guy or girl to be doing a crowd round. On the other hand, if you've got some party proposition and you've got a huge network, that's the kind of thing that, you know, so if you know how to work a crowd, crowdfunding may be for you. The next alternative might be to use uh, someone like Angel Investment Network Amazing. or Angel's yeah, Den or something like that, who will then help you find. Of course, there's a cost of capital. There's some fee associated with it. So if you can avoid that by finding people yourself, that's great. But of course, that only works if you can. Otherwise, that would be your next step. Thanks. All right, look, Anthony, it's been amazing having you on here. And I, there, there was some stuff in there that particularly your bit around building out the product and the strategy for doing that, that really resonated. And I think there's some reselling advice there. And obviously the stuff around the league is great. I love the product. I love what you're doing. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me.